Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. In the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards shortlisted this Pākehā life and unsettled memoir, Alison Jones contests that being Pākehā requires us to live in a state of permanently lively discomfort with no single resolution, a challenge both difficult and wonderful. She puts her case. We hope you enjoy it. Kena tato te pari. E koana te nako. Kua tai mai koto ki te fakanui te kopapo te ra. E pai ki o ki te kiti ki te kite kia koto iti ne ahiai. So good to see everybody here. What a crowd! Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and choosing to come to this session. Um, as this is a memoir without a kind of topic, you know, it's not about a thing so much as my life, um, it's very, very hard to know how to focus in for a conversation like this. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about how the book came to, came to be. Increasingly, my work at the university has become what might be called, for want of a better word, cultural training. I don't like the phrase, but I've never really come up with, for another one, with another one. Um, particularly oriented towards Pākehā, who are working within institutions, like many of us are, uh, that have, you know, the treaty and their mission statements, and these days increasingly Māori words scattered wildly all over like confetti. You can't move for Māori terms in some institutions like my own University of Auckland. Um, Pākehā who are kind of, or, and, and non-Māori, I have to say, a lot of um, immigrant groups as well, who are attempting to think about their relationships with Māori, both institutionally and personally, um, and finding it really hard to articulate uh, their feelings about those relationships, which they find difficult. Um, often there's a lot of uh, anxiety, shame, guilt, um, People say, look, I'm signing my, I, my emails, ngā mihi, you know, whatever, or I'm saying kia ora, but I don't really feel it's, I'm authentic in doing that because I don't really know what I'm saying. I don't really have a relationship with Māori, but I feel I ought to, you know, do the right thing and have kia ora at the top or tēnākwe or something, and I'm trying to learn some real, but I'm not really doing very well, et cetera, et cetera. You've probably heard it all before, and in fact, many of you have probably felt some of those things. Um, and so increasingly, as someone who works and has worked within a Māori environment uh, at the university, I hasten to add, uh, for a long, long time, and spent time reflecting on my own um, set of relationships through my life and where, what took me to where I am today, um, I felt I needed to write this book, um, not just to tell my story, I guess, but to reassure Pākehā or reassure non-Māori about the complexities, the difficulties, the joys, the necessity um, of this relationship and how it plays out in various sorts of ways. Um, and over the last 60 odd years, I'm in my late 60s now, I've seen an absolutely enormous shift 
um, in the discourses or the, the thinking and the talking by Pākehā about relationships with Māori, both within institutions and, and personally. And when you've been involved in those relationships for 60-odd years and thinking about them for that long, you see how much our views are affected by the time in which we have them. We can't separate ourselves out from the historical moment in which we live. And this historical moment seems to be at some kind of tipping point, I'm not quite sure, we'll wait and see, where Pākehā are now in large numbers intensely interested about this relationship, intensely anxious about this relationship, somewhat confused, etc. There's a whole range of feelings that go with it. And I find in teaching the staff that I do at the university about this, for me, one of the key things is not just giving them knowledge about our history, but also trying to help them to understand themselves as Pākehā, or however they understand themselves in terms of their identities, and their emotional, spiritual relationship with themselves in relation to our history. And um, I've been talking recently to some people about the, the um, new curriculum, the new history curriculum that's going to be compulsory in primary schools, poor primary school teachers, uh, in the next couple of years. And very, very conscious that we can provide all the resources, you know, great stories, facts, etc., etc. But unless we, Pākehā, understand our relationship to that history, understand who we are as Pākehā, and are comfortable with that, or can sit with that, we can't teach this material well. It's just not going to work. And I know that teachers are going to just find ways of avoiding it, understandably, um, or botch it up and make a mess of it, which is what we don't want either. Um, so there's so many ways <laughs> into thinking about those emotions, those requirements of us as, as Pākehā in this relationship. Uh, with Māori. So I thought just today, uh, what I'm really interested in is your questions and having a conversation with you. But I thought I'd just throw a couple of things up out of the book um, to get us started. Just the teacher in me is doing this. How many of you have read the book? So about maybe towards a half, maybe just under a half. Um, so I won't need to, um, I was just wondering whether you know, it was worth reading bits, but probably not. I'm going to, I'm going to um, just go to two key points in the book. Well, there are many key points, but there are two key points that people raise with me quite commonly. So I thought I would return to those. Um, and one is about the whole question of memoir, writing a memoir and the question of memory, how we remember and what we remember. And... The first part of the book is my memories of being a child in New Zealand in a range of small towns and my relationship with Māori girls, who were my mates, to whom I was very attracted and who I thought were my friends. Um, I just wanted desperately to be as free and as funny and as laughing and as fast and as cool as they were, because I was a bit of a parkier girl, you know, high achiever at school, a bit, a bit uptight. Um, and I think that they, they represented for me something other, something that I wanted, um, something that was beyond my own anxieties about my own achievement and following the Jones family rules, which were, you know, how to be middle class. 
Um, and my memory of being in Dannyburg, one of the places I, was, I spent time as a child, um, my memory was of a particular girl called Maria. Um, Maria, I, I loved Maria from a distance. She was pretty amazing. And I had this memory that she invited me one day to her house for lunch. It was just over the road from the school. We dashed over the road to her house, and I remember sitting in the, in the kitchen. It was warm, moist smell. There was a boil up on the table. Her mother was speaking to her in a very relaxed way, and lunch was served. I had my little lunch box and didn't have any of the boil up. Thank you very much. Um, and, and afterwards, we went into her bedroom. Maria showed me her bedroom. It was designed for two single beds, and there were th three jammed in for her and her two sisters. Each was covered in a candlewick, yellow candlewick bedspread. There was no space to walk around between the beds, so we crawled across them. As we lay on the beds, I marvelled in my own childlike way at how different this life was. Maria and her friends broke all the rules. They ran across the road. They didn't bring a lunchbox to school. They shouted and laughed. They had crowded bedrooms. The children were allowed opinions. It was possible to be happy even though you broke the rules. This was a revelation, and I held on to it like a precious treasure. Now, 50 years later, when I came to write this book, more than 50 years later, I decided to find Maria. I hadn't been in touch with her since I was 10. Anyway, I tracked her down, thank goodness for Facebook. Um, and she agreed to meet me in Danny Burke. And so, long story short, after some small talk, I recalled my happy memories of Maria's house and her bedroom. She listened quietly, then she laughed, delighted and bemused. She didn't live on the corner of Robert Street, she says, but two houses down the road, on the other side. She never ran willy-nilly across the main road. She had no sisters. Her bedroom had only one bed. Her father was, a fish, was not a fisherman, because I remembered all the, the, the dead sharks and things and, and all sorts of interesting things around the house, um, but a shearer and a fencer. They never put the pot, a pot in the middle of the table but served their boil up in individual bowls. She couldn't remember me coming for lunch. <laughs> With a mild sense of panic, I stared at Maria. Are you th you're thinking about the Stuarts, she said, a Parkia family. Their father was a fisherman and they lived on the corner. Josephine Stewart had two sisters. For all my adult life, I'd traced my interest in the Māori world back to Maria's house, <laughs> on the corner of Robert Street, to her parents' kitchen and the crowded yellow candlewick-covered beds. But it was a Pākehā girl's bedroom and kitchen, not Maria's. I had invented a memory, a pastiche of recollections and obscure feelings. The story of my Māori friend turned out to be a fantasy of the imagined domestic spaces of a Māori family. I had to accept what she said. Did she remember me at all? <laughs> yes, but only slightly. <laughs> and then she went on and apologised at great length to me for not choosing for me for her sports team. <laughs> this is when we were ten, you know. And I'd entirely forgotten this, and she was very apologetic about this. I said, oh, don't worry. I would have pulled your team down anyway. So, um, And that was, a, that was a very interesting moment for me, and in, in going back to talk to Maria. 
And I have to say, Maria was not happy about me writing um, that memory in this book because she said it wasn't true. <laughs> I had to explain it was a kind of literary device, really, <laughs> that I had to recall the memory as it was and then go back and, and shockingly find it wasn't true. I found that quite interesting that I had for so many years, you know, remembered Maria and this moment when I fell in love with Māori families, etc. That was all complete fantasy. And I realised over time that it was part of my developing who I was as a Pākehā, that I had to have this kind of originary memory that kind of linked me somehow to Māori. And it was through this moment in this kitchen. And clearly my own desire for this connection um, created that, that memory. And I think many of us do have this desire for that connection. And sometimes we imagine um, you know, connections that, that, that maybe didn't exist uh, that help us to understand ourselves as Pākehā. So and that, that was just one an interesting thing that people often point to in the book as something that they find interesting to think about, um, memory and desire and how those are connected, particularly for those of us Pākehā who are looking for that relationship. The other little um, snippet from the book that I just wanted to throw up, because it's much more controversial um, and, and, and more difficult to get your head around. And this um, recalls a moment when I was up at a Waitangi tribunal hearing and um, I was speaking to a man from Ngapuhi who was a, a descendant of Hongihika. And uh, he was telling me the story of Hongihika that he knew about Hongihika going to England um, in 1820, which Hongihika did, and fighting the king's um, soldiers with his taiaha, uh, and thereby earning the ability to go to see, have an audience with the king. Now, as far as I could work out from my historical research, this didn't happen. And so I tried to tell him this. <clears throat> Putting him right, my enthusiastic knowledge of the past was to tell this guy about his own tupuna. Um, and I realised I was pointing at him. I said, no, that's not right. He slapped my hand. And I thought, oh, great, Alison, well done. Um, and, and when I started reflecting on this moment, um, I remembered Patu Hohepa's view of accounts of the past. He's a Ngāpuhi scholar, and he said that historical absolutes, this striving for objectivity has no central place in Māori narrative where the past and the future are swirling spirals of time with events and people interacting with the presence of the narrator. And I was really struck by that idea, the presence of the narrator. So this idea of history was a kind of construction at this kind of, it was a moving relationship that was occurring in a particular context with particular people for particular reasons, just as I'm creating a story here for you now. But my interest as a Pākehā historian was, did that actually happen? But his interest was actually telling a story about Hongihika's bravery, his mana, what he was able to achieve on this great trip before the king. And so I kept thinking about the idea of our different notions of the past and the importance of storytelling and as it, how it works in, in the moment of telling a story. Because books carry disembodied words, but real people can be known and collectively evaluated, their words absorbed in the context of a crowd or a conversation. And as people like Coral Jews has said, a face seen 
as an argument understood. So how an argument is understood depends on how the face scene conducts herself. And many Pākehā talking in Māori context or thinking about Māori things have hurdles to overcome in that regard when talking with Māori. I mean, my whaka, a Pākehā whakapapa might mean I know little, very little, or not know a little, but that I know little in a Māori context, or it might mean I know a lot. My education, ditto, depending on the attitude of the listeners. I only have face value. As an unknown quantity, I'm judged on my ahua, my demeanour. My Māori supporters, who my mates are, my usefulness to the collective, and my story's connection to what the Māori listeners already know, and, crucially, my sense of humour, <laughs> which always seems to be a key thing. So those were just a little couple of reflections I took out um, of the book because those are things that people had kind of picked up with me. I did get one angry email from a, a man who read the book and said, how on earth can we Pākehā negotiate with Māori when they make up stories about the past? And that was an interesting moment because that was his, I, I sort of felt he'd kind of missed the point. Um, but that, I think, is, is not an uncommon response from some people who really have not allowed themselves to feel into a very, very different space of understanding the past, the present and the future. So I'll just leave it there in terms of what I'm saying, but we have some um, quarter of an hour, which is the bit I'm really most interested in. I think we have quarter of an hour, do we, Christine? On. Yes. So if anyone has questions, please come forward now. I invite you to come to the microphone, queue up around the back of the pillar. Gosh, it's a bit terrifying to have to walk and stand in front of a... You can shout out if you like. Shout out. <laughs> you can shout out if you like. That's, there's a question from someone who says, as a writer, I'm wanting to write about te ao Māori, the Māori world, and Māori characters. Where do I go for support? <laughs> now, this is a really good question because this is a question I get asked just about every day from researchers at the university, from a range of people. And it, and it goes from, as a writer, I need to get some information about the Māori world, or it goes to... Um, I'm a researcher, I've just come over from Canada, I'm doing research on Māori, how do I get into, into a Māori community? Um, right through to, well, I'm really interested in improving my Māori relationships, where, where do you find them? Kind of, you know, there's a huge sort of range of, of anxieties and possibilities that go in there. And I guess all I can look at is my own experience, that my own writing could not come first. All my relationships had to come first. And that the writing about te ao Māori, if you, if you dare, I mean, I don't write about te ao Māori myself. As a Pākehā, I don't. I write with Māori, but not um, about te ao Māori. Um, but the relationships form a set of possibilities in thought and feeling, which then can be enacted, if you like, on the basis of those existing relationships that have developed over years, um, into working relationships, whether it's in terms of writing, research, or personal relationships. 
And what I find often is that Pākehā, we're all very busy and we've got, we're, got our eye on the prize and we really want to be relational and we want to have Māori in there because otherwise if we don't, we're ignoring them, etc. We're just so dead keen to get on with it. Where's a Māori? I want a relationship now. <laughs> be my best friend. Teach me everything. Love me. Teach me. This is the whole thing. You know, when we want to be taught, we're asking for love. We're asking for attention. And Māori... You know, we've been asking for Māori attention and taking Māori attention for 200 years, and I think probably they've got other things to be doing. So in terms of your question, where do you go for support, I think it's a double thing. One is it's in your relationships, which take years, and that's, you know, people say, well, I haven't got time for that. Um, well, if you're serious about it... Yeah. That's just the way it works. But also, I think as Pākehā, I think we have to have increasing conversations ourselves. Instead of saying, oh, I want to learn about te ao Māori, I won't need to find a Māori person. I always say, learn about who you are as Pākehā, because that in itself necessarily is a relational term. Pākehā is a Māori word that was quite ancient, that was used for pale fairy folk, if you like, um, and so we turned up with our funny white skin. Ah, the Pākehā have arrived. So is that Māori term that already, because it's Māori, puts us in relationship with Māori? And a number of people say, I'm not going to be a Pākehā, I'm not a Pākehā, because that's a Māori word. Well, yes. <laughs> and that, for me, is the beauty of it that it's us understanding ourselves as Pākehā, not learning more about Māori, although that has to happen too. But in becoming Pākehā, thinking about ourselves as Pākehā, thinking about our personal and ancestral and structural relationship with Māori, that we can do that work. And I get so many coming to the classes saying, well, I want to learn some today. I want to learn about tikanga on the marae, so how to behave, um, and I want to feel better in a Māori setting. And I and they sort of it's like a bag of things, a bag of tricks. I want to get those and on Monday morning I'll be able to do, tick all those off, you know. But it really doesn't work like that and it becomes very difficult to talk about. Because people do want black and white. Well should I sit here? Should I do that? Who should I talk to? And when you're trying to talk about how relationships work in the minutiae of those moments um, it's very, very hard to say this is what you do and this is how you'll get there, you know. And so the poor old anthropologists that come from overseas that want to do research in, in kōhanga or kaupapa Māori settings, I just have to say, well, you know, I think it's a really good idea you go back to Canada and you write a whole chapter on how you didn't manage to do it. <laughs> That's great, you know. That in itself is a good thing. Um, and, you know, and I, so in a sense what I'm saying is don't run crying about it. If Māori say, nah, I don't want to talk to you, or they say, yeah, and then they don't turn up, or they don't reply to your email, or they don't ring you back, whatever, don't worry about it. Just get on with who you are and understanding how you are in any of these kinds of situations. And your mistakes are what it's all about and going back and writing a, a chapter in your thesis about how I didn't manage to do it because I'm a white person you know, heading into the native territory and expecting them to give me some attention, 
that's a really good thing to think about and write about. Yeah, long-winded answer to your your great question. Kia Oh, there's two. There's one here, and and then you. Yes, I think that's a really good question because, again, I think um, suddenly Māori have become visible to Pākehā in a way that is, I want a relationship with you. But the Māori bit is where we get stuck. We don't actually understand that Māori are fundamentally tribal and so therefore have very, very different histories and therefore different relationships, might have different relationships with us, different politics, as you say, different background experiences, many can't speak Māori and it's becoming very dangerous I notice with Pākehā bowling into a Māori space, finding a Māori person chatting in Māori and finding that person doesn't understand what they're saying. I mean that's the most appallingly awkward and ghastly situation which I never ever want to witness again, I've seen it once before. So these, the, the complexities there are massive. And also there's situations where we've had people sitting, I've, I've been in a staff room and people have said, now we need to consult with our Māori community. Um, looking out the window, where is the Māori community? <laughs> sort of without actually looking around the room, saying, oh, I have a Māori colleague here who may have something to say on this matter. So there's all those complexities in the way that we see Māori, you know, that are very homogenised, that are very... Um, focused in certain kinds of ways, and, and they're full of fantasy, you know, the Māori community. I don't know, they're full of knowledge and, you know, spooky spiritual things and karakia and, you know, there's a sort of specialness about it all. And yet for many of us working in urban settings, the Māori community is a poor, disenfranchised community that has no links to their whakapapa. And so if we start, and, and this is opening up, which I won't go on about, a whole big discussion about, you know, this new curriculum that we're going to all have to cope with, which focuses on Māori and colonisation, but actually doesn't give a lot of attention to capitalism. And yet the impact on Māori that we're seeing now is colonialism, which is so interconnected with capitalism that we must understand social class as well. And if we just look at culture, then we look at every Māori person as a kind of, ooh, a Māori person, rather than this, you know, deeply complex um, group, just as we all are, uh, who, who are all results of our own um, group and individual histories. Sorry. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the teaching of history of Māori history in the, in the curriculum that's coming in, and just in relation to what you were talking about, your, um, your experience at Waitangi, and the idea of history being fact, or history and memory, which is sort of more of a, has a moral aspect to it, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, like God, just, just a small question there, Min, just a very small <laughs> question. <laughs> I mean, these, these are the very questions that are being grappled with by the people who are trying to design this curriculum. You can I mean, I just, 
I don't know how they even do it. They don't sleep, you know. There's just a million things that you can't do and you can do in these kinds of situations. And a recognition, of course, that histories for Pākehā and for Māori are different things, have different effects, have different content, have different purposes. And so I'm very interested in the Marautanga, that's the Māori curriculum in Te Reo Māori for the kura, for the Māori um, kids in the kura, because um, they also have a renewed history curriculum. So I have yet to sit down with any of my Māori colleagues to find out, what does your history curriculum look like? Because I don't think it's going to look like that. Um, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Um, but one thing I am noticing, and I think this is a result of... of um, modern life anyway, a large number of my Māori students are looking at history in a Pākehā way. That's all they can do, because they don't have those spiritual um, mātauranga skills and depths that have been lost through colonisation to bring to those stories. So we're increasingly getting Pākehā tell, uh, Māori telling Māori histories somewhat in the way that a Pākehā might tell them. So there's all that as well. So I'm not answering your question very well, Min, but it's just a bloody complicated question. <laughs> and um, and I, I pity the poor teachers who are going to um, handle this. And I'm just assuming that they're going to, by inviting Māori, poor Māori from communities, come into our school and tell us your stories yet again. Um, that they're going to be able to tell those stories and have them just accepted for, for, for what they are and, and how they work. Um, but it takes quite a sophisticated teacher to be able to do that. And someone who's quite confident in their own identity and who they are and who the kids can be um, to not sort of panic about this weirdo story um, about the past that's actually not true. So, you know... Thanks for the question. <laughs> Not. So we've got time for one more, and I think there was a question over at the back earlier on. Ah, that's an interesting one. We're trying to be bicultural, but what? The, but there's what about the problem that Thomas Kendall encountered? Our first, I think you said Thomas Kendall, the first um, teacher in a school in New Zealand, went over to the Maori side because he became so knowledgeable about Tao Maori and so convinced by it and so part of it that he could not no longer kind of sit comfortably in his Christian world. So you're drawing that up as a, as a problem. I don't see a problem here, and I don't see that Pākehā are going to do this in a big way. I really don't. And I think that some of us kind of catastrophize <gasps> what might happen if we do this. And yet, it doesn't happen like that. It, if, we're, if we're really interested in relationships, those will develop in a whole range of places. And those of us who become more knowledgeable about te ao Māori, all the better. I can't see that there's a big problem. All I can see that problem might exist is that, as I, as I sort of mentioned before, 
Pākehā becoming knowledgeable in te reo Māori and te ao Māori and kind of lording it over Māori in a recolonizing moment. And that, you know, that seems to me more of an issue than worrying about us all becoming Māori. I mean, I think that would be quite good, good actually. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your uh, generosity in writing the book and sharing what you've shared with us. And thank you for this um, opening this conversation for us today. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.